Good morning, Christ Community Church. It's a Saturday morning here for me. We're recording because of the coronavirus, and we hope that you guys are staying safe and doing all the things that you need to do in order to remain safe in this very unusual time. This is obviously unusual for us. I'll be preaching today to four other guys who are here to make this video possible, so we'll see how all this works out. But I wanted us to begin by just looking at a passage of Scripture and praying together before we do our sermon in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, the prayer comes from Psalm 131. If you remember, these are the Psalms of the Ascent. So these are pilgrims moving their way to the temple in Jerusalem. And they're always going up because the temple's on the high mountain in Jerusalem. And as they're going up, they're trying to prepare their minds, their souls, their spirits for meeting and encountering God. And so one of the Psalms says this, Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. So my heart is not lifted up. I'm not primarily focused on myself. I'm trying to move out from, from my life with that centered around myself to thinking about you. My, my eyes are not focused on the things of the world. I'm not, I'm not concerning myself with all the things that are happening in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm refocusing on what you're doing in this chaotic world. And that has brought a quietness and a peace to my soul. So I think this is helpful for us, especially at this time, that we would do that. So I want you to pray with me. Lord, we come together this morning and... We do have our eyes inward, thinking about ourselves, thinking about our lives, thinking about this world. We do listen to the news and we concern ourselves with the whirlwind of news that uh, surrounds us, especially uh, the coronavirus. And we wonder what should we be doing, what in the world is happening. But as we come together for these few minutes, we're trying to even push those things away. and quiet our soul. Because we can trust in a God who is in control of everything. You control the wind and the waves. You control a germ, a virus. Nothing is outside of your sovereign control. And knowing that, trying to digest that can help us still and quiet a restless soul. So that's my prayer for me even right now. It's my prayer for my friends who are watching, especially for the fearful soul, for the person who um, is panicked inside because of things that are happening outside would you come in and quiet our souls? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're still in our sermon series on 2 Samuel, and today we are going to be at a key chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is probably the key chapter in all of the first and 2 Samuel chapters, and I want to read the first 18 verses, and then we'll talk about that together. 
2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar. But now the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent in my for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, whenever you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall come and afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed the judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me as a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? When you start reading the Bible, one of the very first things you come across is this um, terrible event in Genesis chapter 3. The, the fall of Adam and Eve and then the fall of all humanity into sin and darkness. And in this sin and darkness, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes a very significant promise. He, he gives us hope. It's like out of the darkness, He has one little pin dot of light. Adam and Eve have fallen into darkness, but God doesn't leave them without some kind of hope. And he says this in Genesis chapter 3, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, between your offspring and, and his offspring. But he, this seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So theologians call this the very first gospel. This is the the first ray of hope after mankind falls into sin. So one day there's going to be an offspring of a woman. There's going to be somebody coming from the woman who is a leader. And this leader is going to come forward and he's going to crush evil. He's going to bring light back in 
from darkness. And so from this point on, from this verse on, everybody's leaning forward in the Bible and they're looking for this leader. Who is this leader going to be? And as you read through the Old Testament, you get greater and greater clarity on what this leader is going to be like. This, this single, single pin dot of light burst into the sun of Jesus by the time you get to Matthew chapter 1. And so maybe the best way to think about this is, I don't know if you've uh, had this experience. I'm sure most of you have had. You've been to the optometrist. And somehow you can't read anymore or you can't see what's on the chalkboard or you can't see when you're driving. So they, you sit down in the chair and they have this sort of funky looking machine that comes before your eyes. It's called a refractor. And the refractor has all kinds of dials and lenses on it. And they ask you to look through it at that, that board with the letters on it. And they, ca- they keep clicking around and saying, can you see? Is this better than that? How about A or B? And they keep clicking through the refractor until you can see the letters clearly. So really what we have going through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 3, is the refractor coming up to us. And over and over, God clicks one of the lenses and says, see, you can see a little bit better now. There's something a little bit more you can see about this leader right now. Genesis 15 is one of these big clicks where Abraham is the one who's chosen and he's the one who's going to have a family that's going to bless all nations. Deuteronomy 18 is another significant click that we say, okay, this, this person that's coming from Genesis, 15, uh, Genesis chapter 3 is going to be from Abraham's family and he's going to be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. God says, I will raise up a prophet like you among the nations. Okay, so a little bit more clarity now. We're saying, okay, this person's going to come from Abraham, and they're going to be something like Moses. Now let's just think for a moment moment, how many ways Moses points to Jesus. The people of God lived in bondage with no hope for escape. They're down in Egypt and they're stuck. They can't seem to get out. And so God intervenes, and how does he intervene? He he sends somebody from the outside. You remember uh, Moses was living, living in the desert. He sends somebody from the outside, but yet he's like them. He's one of them. He's a Hebrew. He comes in and he's going to save his people. The, the people were finally set free, as you remember, because they took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Then Moses baptizes them by bringing them through the Red Sea And he helps them cross over from death to life. And then he promises, we're going to get to the promised land. Well, that's the gospel. That's the gospel in Moses. And so when we read this, we say, yes, this person that's coming is going to be like Moses. And we know that person is Jesus. He's the one who comes from the outside. He's like us. He's the blood that covers our sin. He's the one who baptizes us. He's the one who says, I'm going to walk you through this wilderness of your life. And I promise to bring you into the promised land. So we, we get a click in, in, in Deuteronomy 18, and then we get another significant click, another significant moment of clarity in 2 Samuel, which is our text here today. The offspring of the, the woman is going to come through the line of David, and he will be the true king. You see it in here. His kingdom is going to reign forever and ever 
I hope what comes to mind when you think about the King of Kings reigning forever and ever is that familiar Handel's Messiah chorus. And he shall reign forever and ever. Man, I wish I could sing it. I wish I could just break out in that big volume voice of he shall reign forever and ever. And notice how Handel writes it over and over and over again. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's constantly being repeated. And I think it's being repeated because Handel knows, God knows, he needs to extract our kingdom out of our own hearts and soul and we say no it's his about his kingdom it's not about our kingdom so this king this person is going to come he's going to be a king he's going to be in the line of david so we're not at all surprised when we turn to the new testament matthew 1 and the very first words a record of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of the son of david it's, it's Matthew's way of saying the sun has come up. All the little clicks, all the little points of light have now collected in one person. That's Christ. Luke chapter 1, the angel says to Mary, You will be with a child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus. He's the Lord, and God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign forever and ever and his kingdom will never end so in second samuel we're looking for a king we see a king in david we know he's not the perfect king but we know there is a king coming behind him and he's going to be the the king of kings and when we see jesus we have 2020 vision everything comes together and we see perfectly so i want us to look at this particular passage here in chapter 7 and I want to look at it through three different lens, three, three different lenses. One, David's request. Second, layers of grace. And third, David's response. So David makes a request, and then God gives his response through the prophet Nathan. And I'm going to call that layers of grace. And finally, we'll end with David's response, verse 18. So let's look at the first three verses, chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. Now, when the king lived in the house, the Lord had given him rest from all of his surroundings. So everything's at peace for David. And the king comes to to Nathan, the prophet. This is the priest. David comes to Nathan. See, I'm living in this wealthy house. It's lined with cedar. It smells good. It's, It's really well put together. And I look over and see the ark of God. It's in a tent. And Nathan says to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart to do. Saul is dead. The Philistines have been put in their place. Israel is consolidated in Jerusalem under one king. The ark of God has been brought back into the people of God. And David is in the leadership position. Everything's coming together. He's in an unprecedented period of time of peace and prosperity. And naturally, David wants to do something for God. And so he reasoned, I think, very, very understandably that, hey, he, since he lives in such a nice house, God ought to live in a nice house too. And this made perfect sense to David. And so he comes to Nathan, his friend, and his, his priest, his pastor. And the wealthy king comes to Nathan and says, hey, I'd like to start a building project. And of course, Nathan is like, great. 
Whenever a wealthy person comes to me and wants to start a building project, what am I going to say? Go, do all that is in your heart to do. I love that. That's, that would be great, David. Make that happen. And so that's exactly what Nathan says. He says go, but then later that night, as he's resting before the Lord, God comes to Nathan and says, Hey, Nathan, I know you told David yes, but you're going to have to go back and tell him no. Now, why would God say no? I mean, this seems like a completely reasonable request. It actually seems a little bit unreasonable that David had built himself a nice house before he built a nice house for the Lord. So why is it unreasonable in some way that God wants to make sure David doesn't build this house, or at least he doesn't build a house for him right now? Now, let me offer up a few reasons. First of all, in the ancient Near East, so in that area during that time, there was a well-known pattern established. And everybody in that time would have understood this pattern. And that is that some king comes to power. He has military, he has military uh, success. And then after the military success, he builds his God a temple. And then after that temple is created, the priest of that God comes in and he tells the king something like this, because you have built me a dwelling place, I will establish your kingdom forever. You've had success, you've built God a temple, and now the priest comes in and says, because you've done all these things, I'm going to make your name live forever. In fact, we have an exact quote from 1400 B.C., the Egyptian ruler the Third. The priest comes in and says this, and I quote, You have erected my dwelling place, so I will establish you upon the throne for millions of years that you would lead the living for eternity. You hear that? This is the pattern. Over and over in the ancient Near East, The king does something, and then God blesses those people. So why would God not want David to fall into that pattern? How does God respond? He says, no, I'm not going to do that pattern, David. I know you've seen that. I know that's what's been happening around you, but I'm not like all other gods. In fact, I'm just the opposite. God comes to David and shockingly says, David, you don't build me a house, I build you a house. And David had to be stunned. But God wanted to make sure David and all of Israel didn't slip into some sort of false belief that the God of the Bible was like all other religions. He's not like all other religions. Religion says you do something for God and He blesses you. That's how religion works. I'm doing something, and because I've done something, because I've had some great success, because I've built something, because I've taken on some great project, then God's going to bless me. That's religion. Christianity is God does something for you, and then He blesses you. That's called grace. That's what we call grace. He's doing all the work. And you get to enjoy all the work that He's doing in and through you and maybe in spite of you. And then He's going to, on top of that, He's going to bless you. That's what we call grace. Grace. So you might think of one reason that God says no is because of grace. He wants to make sure David understands grace. 
Second reason, Eugene Peterson in his great commentary on this passage says this, There are times when our grand human plans do something for God, to do something for God are a huge distraction from what God is doing for us. Let me say that again. There are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are a huge distraction from what God is doing for us. It's possible that you could take on a project that seems great. In fact, if you came to me and said, Paul, I think I'm going to do this project, I might say, that seems like a great project. If I were you, I would do that project. And it might be some grand project, it might be smaller, but God might say, no, I don't want you to take on that project. Because that project, even though it has sort of my name attached to it, that service, even though it has my name attached to it, actually is going to serve as a distraction. Your desire may seem reasonable, but your desire is going to turn into a distraction. So God says, no. So what I think we hear God informing David of and maybe informing you of is God saying, look, the kingdom I'm shaping here isn't about what you do for me. I'm doing the building here, not you. I don't want you to confuse anything. I don't want you to get confused by launching some great project because I know the heart of man. They launch some great project and before too long, before too long, everyone is caught up in what you're doing. And they lose sight of what I'm doing. If you notice in these verses, in God's response, 23 times, He's the first person subject of what He's talking about. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. He says it 23 times. It's a way of saying, it's all about me, guys. It's not about you. It's not about your project. It's about my project. And I want you to get in the center of that. And I don't want anything to distract from that reality. So I wonder... I wonder, especially for myself, for the CCC staff, for anyone really who serves here at Christ Community Church, if we've said yes to something that's actually serving as a distraction. I mean, everyone else, when they saw it, would say, oh, that's great, you're really serving the Lord, you're doing something great. But in in reality, what it's done is I'm so focused on that project, I've forgotten the person of Christ. Is it possible that a good desire needs to be said, you need to hear no to? Because God knows that good desire will quickly get you distracted from himself. Third possibility here of why God says no, and this is, Eugene Peterson, just making a guess here, but I like what he says, and I think it's pretty close to the target. I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, he's riding the crest of great popularity, and he had begun to think that he could do God a favor. If David continued to progress along these lines, he would be ruined as a representative of God. Now listen to this last line. If any of us develop an identity in which God and His grace is less important to to us 
than our own action and importance. If any of us begin to develop an identity that God in His grace somehow is smaller than what I'm doing for the Lord, then our ability to represent God is utterly destroyed. I wonder, again, I wonder for myself, I wonder for you, if you've ever thought, I'm doing God a favor. Oh, he's going to like this. I'm going out of my way for God. I'm going to really get in his favor because of all this thing that I've done. And, and no one even knows it. But somehow you feel secretly you're, you're doing God a favor. I wonder if for any of us, if our identity somehow is more wrapped around what we're doing than what God has done. That mostly we're focused about our checklist, the things that we're going to do, how proud we should feel of ourselves and what God is going to be pleased at versus what God has done. See, our, our good desires can quickly become a distraction. So that's David's, David's request. David's request, I, I want to build something, and he gets a no. He's going to get a no from Nathan. The second thing is just we're going to examine uh, very briefly the layer, what I'm going to call layers of grace, verses 8 through 17. This is God responding to Nathan. Nathan God comes to Nathan and says, hey, Nathan, let me tell you why I'm going to, going to say no to David. And I need you to repeat this back to David because these are the things that he needs to hear. And I found this so fun and so fascinating to discover this week. It's what I'm calling layers of grace. And this is what David hears from Nathan. Look with me. Verse 8. Look, David, I took you from the pasture. Do you remember? I want you to remember the, 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 the present grace of God. David, I'm going to remind you of all the things you already know, that all the ways God has already given you grace. I, I took you from the pasture. Remember, I plucked you out of nowhere. You're tending sheep, and I'm the one who made you the king. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went. I was with you when you were in 10 years of living in a cave. Remember, I was always with you the whole time. Do you remember that, David? And verse 9, do you know that I cut off all your enemies? You can't read that without thinking about Goliath. I cut off all your enemies. David, it wasn't you that cut off the head of Goliath. That was me operating through you. So, David, do you, do you remember your, the present grace that you're experiencing right now? That's what I need you to remember. I need you to be focused on that grace. God wants David to remember all the grace that he's already poured into David's life. Second layer of grace. God's, God's not done pouring out grace. It's called future grace. Notice the change in verse 9. I will. See, this is future grace. I will make for you a great name. I mean, your name is sort of good now, but I'm going to make your kingdom last forever. I will do something. I will, verse 11, give you rest from all of your enemies. And then verse 12 and 13, let's read that together. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will. I will raise up for you an offspring who shall come from your body and I will, I will establish his kingdom 
forever. And he shall build a house for my name. This, this offspring who's going to last forever, he's actually building a house for my name. That's Jesus. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is all future grace. David, I'm just going to layer out grace upon grace upon you. First of all, here's all the grace you've experienced. You got that, David? Okay, here's all the grace you're going to experience. I'm not done pouring out. I'm going to keep pouring out. And finally, and this is where it gets really mind-blowing, is God's grace is indestructible. It's not only present grace that David knows about it. It's not just future grace. It's called indestructible grace. Verse 12, after you, meaning, David, after you die, my grace is still going to be operational. David, your, your death isn't going to limit my grace. Verses 14 and 15. When, when, a, when you or a future king commits iniquity, when you and a fut- or a future king sins, whenever you fall short of the glory of God, I want you to know your sin isn't going to destroy my grace. Your death isn't going to destroy my grace. Your sin isn't going to destroy my grace. David, no matter how far you wander, no matter how far... The, the kings behind you wonder. Nobody can destroy my grace. Of course, this is going to be very important for David to remember in chapter 11, which we'll get to. And then finally, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Time can exhaust God's grace. Death can exhaust God's grace. Sin can exhaust God's grace. Time can't exhaust God's grace. Nothing can separate you from the grace of God. Now this this reminds me of the great words, this closing line from Romans 8. Remember when Paul says, For I am convinced, I'm convinced, I know, this is what I know for sure, that neither death or life, angels, demons, the present, the future, any powers, no height, no depth, nothing in all creation can possibly separate me from the love and the grace of God. Amen? God's layers of grace. I just wonder if you've experienced God's grace. If you have, it might be a good day just to reflect on present grace. I I remember when God called me out of nowhere. I, I I can specifically remember being completely lost in what God wanted me to do. And in 1986, I sort of just come to the end of myself. My, my world felt like it was unraveling. My, my mother was dying. I just, I didn't know what to do. I was living in a little trailer in Myrtle Beach. It was 10 feet wide and 60 feet long. And I stood there in the middle of the summer of 1986 and I just cried out and said, God, I don't know what to do. And in a way that I could only hear God's voice, he said, now you're ready to serve me. I want you to be in ministry. And from that day forward, I've been in ministry, young life and now pastor. I, I remember that. That's, that's grace. That's God plucking me out of nowhere and saying, Paul, you were nowhere. You were doing nothing. And I've plucked you out. I can remember that. I hold on to that. I have a marker for that. And I'm wondering if you have that same kind of marker in your life where you say even though the circumstances in my life are chaotic I remember God's grace 
I'm going to trust that His grace isn't done pouring out on me. There's, there's going to be future grace. I may not be feeling it right now, but as I step forward in the future, I know I'm going to meet God. And when I meet God, I'm going to meet grace. And His grace is going to be there for me after I die. His grace is going to be there for me when I sin. His grace is indestructible. It's called amazing grace. So we have David's request. We have God's great response. And now we have David's response. So how is David going to respond to this? He, he's, he's had all this energy to go in one direction. Nathan is going to come in and say, Hey, you know what? The Lord said no. Verse 17. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David, the Lord says no. David wanted to build something. It's quite a test for David. Is he going to listen to Nathan? It's going to be another test for him in a few chapters. Will he listen to Nathan? Will, will he listen to David? He's got all this energy to move in one direction, and God says, "I don't want you to w- move in that direction. What will you do?" And look at verse eighteen with me. Then David the king went in, and what did he do? He sat down. You need to circle this. David went in and he sat before the Lord. Again, Peterson says it this way. David sat before the Lord. This is perhaps David's greatest act. More significant than killing Goliath. David was the king, bursting with ambition and plans. Reigning in David was like reigning in a team of horses. Yet David let himself be stopped by God. David let himself be stopped by God. He sat before the Lord. Last line. What we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we in fact do. What we don't do is often more critical, more key to our success, more key to the kingdom of God than what we in fact do. And notice David isn't just sitting passively. We don't have time, but the rest of the chapter is a great prayer. It's a God-centered, God-focused prayer. Let me just read a couple of verses for you in verse 20. And what more can David say, God? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O God. There's nobody like you. There's no God beside you. He's constantly focused on the Lord. And then in verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to me, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. For some of us here, and maybe especially for me, it's time to sit down. You got all these grand projects, you got all these grand desires. I'm not saying they're bad. But the Lord may just say, you know what, Paul? It's not about you. 
It's not about a project. It's not about your big plan. In fact, what you're planning right now has a great desire, but the product is, is going to be not, not looking at me, not being able to focus on me. I need you to sit down. And so I thought about that, especially this week. What's the coronavirus causing us all to do? Sit down. Can't, ga- can't gather here. Can't go to work, maybe. You can't do a lot of things. A lot of the things that were on your schedule now, like just like my schedule, you know what? I've taken that off my schedule. The weekend that I planned, you know what? That's an empty weekend now. That event that I was going to go to that I had to work to make happen, now I don't have to work to make happen because it's all been canceled and it may be a byproduct of God saying for you and for me, hey, take the next week, take the next month, sit down. Don't don't waste this opportunity to just sit pray and reorient yourself to the Lord let's pray together Heavenly Father it's um, (laughs) it's humbling to sit down it's humbling to wake up on a Saturday morning and get dressed like it's Sunday And come and preach to four guys and a camera. It's going to be humbling to wake up tomorrow and not know what to do. I pray that we learn to sit down. To not be too concerned about the things and the projects that we're doing. Not be overly concerned about the whirlwind of circumstances. But to still and quiet our souls before a living, holy King. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.